you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 61 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week, you will recall, we had a really fascinating discussion with Ian Drennan, the chief executive of the Corporate Enforcement Authority, and we talked about the authority's role in policing the companies out there. What did you think of that? I think uh, white-collar criminals need to look very carefully at what they're doing. Yeah, oh no, it was really good. Fascinating stuff altogether. Well, today we also have an interview with another big player in the administration of this dear state of ours, uh, as we welcome to the studio Helen Dixon, who later this year will step down after 10 years as Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner. And in fairness, I suppose, Ireland being the centre of the world when it comes to social media and all those huge companies, she's kind of the data protection commissioner for Europe, really, isn't she? Uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa very often, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she's leaving her job. So we want to talk about where stands data protection as we Mm. speak. And we can talk about her future and all that sort of stuff. Really looking forward to this interview. Okay, but first we're going to look at three cases you have identified from the Decisis website. In our first case this week, we look at the effect of an expression of doubt. Mark, you're going to have to explain that in a tax return, an expression of doubt in a tax return when dealing with a complex piece of tax avoidance. This is the case of Thornton versus the Revenue Commissioners, and it's a decision of Mr. Justice Senan Allen. And the use of expressions of doubt in tax returns was not deemed sufficient to avoid the imposition of penalties, I believe. Yeah, well, I know you love a tax case, Peter. <laughs> and uh, this is one that involved a very complex, I mean, I'm not even going to start trying to, to explain it, but it involved dividend purchase transactions arising from a syndicate dealing with the British Virgin Islands. And so what happened was, basically, when you're engaging in a novel piece of tax avoidance, the revenue often have to rule on whether or not you can avoid the tax in question. And what you're sometimes able to do is to put in an expression of doubt, which is where you say, I'm not quite sure if this is legitimate or not. And that so you're highlighting to the to the revenue. And then if they take a benign view of it, then you won't have to pay the penalties. You just have to pay the tax. But what they said here was they used an expression of doubt in what was quite clearly a questionable tax avoidance mechanism and the fact that they'd stuck the expression of doubt into certain tax returns was not going to be <laughs> enough to it avoid penalties. It's almost Augustinian, doesn't it? Lord, make me pure, but not yet. You yeah, know? Well, or, or, or I'm not quite sure if I'm good. <laughs> okay, very good, Mark. Okay, second case today. Uh, there was a claim against architects for negligence in the design and build of a house, which was found to have structural defects. The claim was issued in 2012, and there was a long period of inactivity. I feel a delay case coming it's, on, Mark. It's another delay case, and it's a decision of Mr. Justice Noonan. It's a it's a, it's straightforward negligence case involving architects. We should just say it's called Began and Deegan. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and what Mr. Justice Noonan said was, there are an awful lot of these delay cases, and you will agree with that, I think, Peter. There's a lot of delay cases, and with the results that there's an awful lot of case law on delay, and just this quotation just gives a flavour of it. He says, this appeal provides a good example with each side arguing persuasively that different cases support the outcome they seek. 
With so many just judgments to choose from, one has to be cautious in placing reliance on isolated statements that may appear to support one side or the other. So he's saying there's too much case law on delay. And I think really the, the, the rules on delay are pretty clear at this stage. You look at the, the delay itself, you look at the prejudice and you look at the balance of justice. And as he said himself, ultimately, the issue is whether you can get a fair trial. Okay, fair enough. And finally this evening, a child claimed damages for personal injury arising from a fall from monkey bars in a playground. The judge had some comments to make about expert evidence in the case. She also said that such bars carried an inevitable risk of accidents. So Mark, can you tell us all about this one? Yeah, so as you said, it's a, it's a case where a child fell from monkey bars and there are monkey bars in a lot of playgrounds that this child fell. And so the issue was, was there an issue with the monkey bars themselves? Had they been properly installed? Had they been properly maintained? And the plaintiff in the case retained an expert witness who had looked at an American website that he said gave an authority that there were problems with this kind of monkey bar. He said uh, he'd researched safety standards for this type of arched monkey bar and located the National Safety Council, a US nonprofit body, which apparently stated in a report that the number of injuries caused by monkey bars is so significant that many experts recommend their removal from all playgrounds. However, he didn't actually produce this report. And the, the comment from Ms. Justice Bolger is, is, should be borne in mind by any expert witness. She said, I found the basis for the engineer's contrary view lacked substance, particularly in his reliance on an unclear criticism made by a US organisation with unspecified credentials by reference to unidentified experts on an unidentified basis. So if you're going to refer to a report, you need to open it oh, and it establish its credentials. And what about the child? Did the child get the child compensation? Was unsuccessful in the case because she took the view that the, the, monkey the, the bars, monkey bars are had been had been pro- no, they'd been properly maintained and They're installed. They're just inherently dangerous. And, no, she said that. Well, there's an inher- there's an inevitable risk of an accident, but. If, if you want to have monkey bars, if you want to have playground equipment, then provided they're properly insta- installed and maintained, then there's no negligence on the part of the owner. Oh, okay, very interesting. All right, back shortly with Helen Dixon. Silence in the fifth court. So we are delighted to be joined in the studio today by Helen Dixon, who is the Data Protection Commissioner. Now, as all listeners will know, our Data Protection Office was based in Port Arlington, a very small office until a few years ago, and is now one of the biggest regulators of data protection probably in the world. So, Helen, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. Maybe you could give us a bit of personal history. Did you always want to be a data protection commissioner? <laughs> Not exactly. I was born and raised in Athlone. I went to school in Our Lady's Bower in Athlone. I did the Leaving Cert very young. I had very little experience of the world didn't really know what I wanted to study. So I ended up doing a primary degree in French and German. No real inklings of Data Protection Commission at that point. And then I went on and I did a master's at UCD in European Economic and Public Affairs under the late Richard Sinnott. And after that, I looked to enter the workplace. And actually primarily because of my languages, my French and German, I was hired by a technology multinational that had its Europe, Middle East and Africa base here in Ireland. And then I worked, went on and worked for a second. Are you able to say which, which tech multinational uh, the, that was? The first one I worked for was a small family owned, very profitable right. little company called Worth Data, probably not well known. It was a barcode reader manufacturer. But I learned loads there in a family owned 
company, it's small enough that you get to do everything and you but, get but an insight. Did you say everything. it was a multinational though? I mean, so it, it, was, it was a multinational. So it in wasn't that an Irish based. It co- was not. It was a, a California based company right. that actually at the time had decided it wanted to move into Europe partly as a type of failover because of all of the power cuts that the business was suffering in California. They had a very intermittent electricity supply and and they wanted a base uh, in Europe so that they had some failover. So actually they were interesting, uh, the couple that owned the company, because they travelled over to Europe, literally self-planned, went around, fell in love with Switzerland, the mountains, the scenery, and established their European base there. And it was only when it was operational that they noticed it was outside the EU and that customs and duties were having to be paid. And it was extremely difficult to recruit staff, as it turned out in Switzerland as well. So I came on board when they were transitioning the operation from Switzerland to Ireland. And was the attraction of Ireland the attraction that we we always hear these days, you know, the, the, the English language, the common law and the low corporate tax, tax rate? It was, and it was very much uh, the ease of doing business here. They they had had that experience where they'd established in Switzerland and it just turned out to be the wrong business model for shipping into the UK, France and Germany at the time. And they were attracted to Ireland because it was easy to do business here. They made contacts that showed them how to get set up, that introduced them to potential staff like me that they were able to hire quickly and bring on board and who were able to speak languages and hmm. serve the market from Ireland. So it was all of those and things. You would, I think have tax- an, you would have had an insight into the mentality of a, of a US company setting up here then. I mean, oh, you, very much so. Absolutely. And hmm. would have been involved as they were procuring legal advisors and, and, and different types of advisors here in terms of setting up, you know, their accounting and bookkeeping hmm. element of the business here. So very much key insights mm. into the positive view of Ireland. Yeah. And, and Helen, can I, can I just ask you, and it's, it's, it's lovely to meet you, and you turned your back then on that wonderful commercial world, you know, that the, the international commerce and all that sort of stuff, and you decided to become a public servant. Mm. So will you tell us about that transition? I will. So after that small company, I went on and worked for a big publicly listed company, Citrix, based out in East Point Business sure. Park. And, and again, a huge learning experience Great fun working there as well, a very vibrant social and sports scene outside of the hard work by day. So I was very happy there. But I I got that niggling feeling in my early 30s that there might be more deeper satisfaction to be attained in a different type of work. And I've read subsequently this comes across a lot of people in their really? early 30s. So the state was calling. Is it a bit like St. Patrick getting kind of it, it, it visitations to come back and yeah. save Ireland? Do you want to kind of... It, it wasn't the necessarily the state. I, I actually sat all eight of the FE1 uh, Law Society exams and thought maybe the deeper meaning would be derived from, from uh, becoming a solicitor. I thought about teaching. I think I'd be a terrible teacher, but I thought about it. So it wasn't necessarily just the state, but policy attracted me. And at the time, as I was sitting the FE1 exams and contemplating whether I would apply for an apprenticeship and go to Blackhall Place, the civil service opened up the first ever senior management competition. So, in fact, I came in as the first ever external assistant principal officer into the civil service. 
And the Department of Enterprise took me in and I had a fascinating policy role as my first assignment overseeing Ireland's fledgling investment in basic research through what was our new Science Foundation at the time, Science Foundation Ireland. So again, an enormous learning experience and insight into serving the political system, but also how the system serves the public. Wow, so what a wonderful opportunity, I mean, to, to, to do that. And in terms of the world of data protection, how did you move into that space? <laughs> um, so I had a number of roles in the public uh, sector after the uh, Science Foundation Ireland role. I oversaw the work permits, green cards and economic migration policy area, the Department of Enterprise. And I was then assigned in 2009 to the company's registration office as registrar. And of course, there I was dealing with a vast register of data and data was was the name of the game. And indeed, making public that data was was the name of the game on the register. And if I could just remind listeners, Last week's episode was with uh, Ian Drennan, who is now the head of the Corporate Enforcement Agency. I think you would have been working with him at at that stage with the Registrar of Companies. So we we would have been adjacent offices. So while we regulated the filing requirements of companies under under company law, he, of course, regulated other aspects in terms of directors. So we had not overlapping roles, but complementary roles in terms of, of, of the Companies Act. So while I was Registrar of Companies, there was a lot of work in train for the ultimate adoption of the new Companies Act in 2014, which is, of course, a massive change in corporate law in Ireland, the biggest change in 50 years at the time. And I was a member throughout that time of the Company Law Review Group. It was chaired at the time by Dr. Tom Courtney. And I was part of a subgroup that was looking again at the question of whether a director's home address and date of birth should appropriately be published on the public register or whether they should be kept private. And this this was a big question that had arisen multiple times. And I was fascinated as part of that subgroup with all the brilliant lawyers that were part of it and, and, and business people at looking at the nuance of how you came to a decision on where the balance properly lay and how reasonable people could come to reasonable different conclusions on the same question. And that's really where I developed an interest in it. I was interested in the nuance of it and I was interested in that whole question of of the right to data protection, but the circumstances in which it has to cede uh, to an interference that that should and will happen. And, th- okay. and that's really what, so, what... So did you ever work in that wonderful premises you guys used to have over the Londis in Port Arlington? Was that was that the case? Who was your colleague, Billy, or your predecessor, Billy? Billy Hawks. Billy Hawks, yes. And was the <laughs> office... This uh, Maybe this, um, this is a very trite point, but I find it interesting. But like Data Protection Commissioner was based over, over a kind of a, a convenience store, let's just say, in Port Arlington, am I right about that? That's right. It, it was originally based in Dublin and then during Billy Hawke's time, I think around 2005, it was part of the government's decentralisation programme and it decentralised from, I think it was the Irish Life Mall, it was on on Abbey Street down to Port Arlington. 
And and Billy often used to argue, and and I don't think he was wrong, that you can regulate from anywhere. Yes, absolutely. But of and, course, and it, no aspersions on Port Arlington. I'm sorry if that's that's the way it came across. <laughs> no, but, but it, it was it, just it, it was always a curiosity. Become, yeah, you know? it became a perception issue that that it, it was alleged that Ireland wasn't taking data protection seriously because as the big internet platforms began to move into Ireland, photographs of the office over the supermarket rather famously began to to circulate and, and, and it was wielded against Ireland. But no, I was never based there because actually when I was hired on foot of an open international competition in 2014, I was brought in with a mandate to re-establish a Dublin headquarters for the office. There was no question, of course, of eliminating Port Arlington. All of our corporate memory was now there and excellent staff, but it was to re-establish a base in Dublin and to start building out and resourcing the Data Protection Authority okay. how, for what was to become the GDPR. And so how big is the agency now? How many staff? So we have over 230 staff okay. today. Right. We have still 30 based in Port Arlington and then about mm. 200 in Dublin. And because Ireland is now really the, the headquarters of so many huge international tech firms for, for the Europe, Middle East and Africa, I mean, Twitter, Facebook, Google, uh, LinkedIn, I mean, so many of them are based here, so many of them are holding a vast quantity of private information, photographs and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's not unreasonable to say that you are in charge of one of the most important data protection agencies in the world. Is that a fair comment? I think it is a fair comment. Ireland has a lot of responsibility and the Data Protection Commission has a lot of responsibility. And as both of you probably know, the GDPR, when it came into application in 2018, for the first time, introduced something called a one-stop shop mm. for multinationals under EU data protection law, which meant that they were regulated primarily by the regulator in the country in which they had mm. uh, what's called their main establishment. But, but given that that the European Union, with whatever three four hundred million uh, citizens, probably more, a vast quantity of those adults have information that is stored in Ireland by these huge companies. And so if they have a, a data protection complaint, it would be addressed to your office. That's right. I mean, just to be pedantic, it's not about where the data is stored. It's not necessarily sure. that the data is stored in Ireland. It's about where the control around decision making for yeah. the data of EU users is. And that is here in Ireland. So you're absolutely right. If, if an individual in Germany has a complaint in relation to how their personal data has been processed by Facebook, it is transferred to the Irish Data Protection Commission or they can lodge it directly with us. Can, can, I, can I just come in there, Helen, and just go back a little bit? So you, you succeeded Billy Hawkes as the Data Protection Commissioner. And on your watch, and you made reference there to the GDPR regulations that came in from Europe, and then we had the Act, the GDPR Act, 2018 that was introduced in Irish legislation. Will you tell us how much of a game changer that was? Oh, it was a a, a completely transformative game changer. I know lots of people debate this and they say, well, look, we always had the EU Data Protection Directive. The principles are still the same. It was really just a small evolution to the GDPR. It wasn't in actual fact, and particularly by reference to the one-stop shop So the principles are still the same in terms of fair processing and transparency and security and integrity of the data and so on. But the one-stop shop created specific procedural obligations and substantive obligations for the Irish DPC. 
So in the run-up, the, the GDPR was adopted in 2016. So there was a very tight two-year turnaround for the 2018 Act uh, to be adopted, but also for the Irish Data Protection Commission to prepare. So we were recruiting staff at a great pace. We were trying to understand the provisions in the GDPR and how the 2018 Act might eventually look as it was passing through the Oireachtas. And we were trying to adapt our procedures internally. So basic things happened like the notification requirement of processing activities that existed under the directive was eliminated. So we had to get rid of some processes and phase out some processes. But then the whole, I will call it convoluted means by which cross-border cases are handled under the GDPR necessitated a huge amount of procedural preparation. And the other significant thing that, of course, is is such an obvious point, I almost didn't mention it. The GDPR brought in a very hard-edged enforcement regime. There were no fining provisions available under the directive or, or through the national acts that transpose the directive. The GDPR brought in those massive fines of up to 4% of turnover of global undertakings have now fined companies of, for several hundred million euro at this stage. Oh, can't mm. hire. It's, it's several billion in fines mm. have been implemented wow. by Fine. the Irish DPC. Implement, implement. that fee like? Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never actually touched any of it. It goes to the central exchequer. And of course, we haven't collected all of it. We've collected about 20 million so far. Again, all gone directly million. to okay. the central exchequer. There, once an appeal is lodged against uh, a decision made, it has the effect of staying the uh, order to pay the fine. And so the appeal is to the Irish High Court? The appeal is to the Irish High Court. Yeah. But in many of the cases that we've dealt with, there's also been a parallel action taken against the European Data Protection Board element of our final decisions. Okay. The one-stop shop is... Complex. I'm happy to lay it all out in all the detail, but you may not want it. As Mark said, because Ireland is the centre of the world, as we all know, and seems to be very important for all these massive international social media and data companies. So does that mean on speed dial you have like Elon Musk, you know, you can ring him, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, is like I'm being slightly, slightly cheesy here, but it is Ireland has a very big role to play in policing how those major international companies go about processing their data and their obligations. Isn't that the case? That That is the case. And so it involves engaging with those organisations at lots of different levels. So, of course, we're handling complaints in respect to their processing every day and we're in contact with them in terms of asking for their responses to complaints and seeking resolution of complaints we're also investigating them in terms of large scale investigations that we have underway. And so they're quite formal and and on the record and high volumes of correspondence exchanged. We also have more informal exchanges with them where we're looking for them to share with us what new services are coming on stream, what the implications may be so that we can get some advanced insight into them. And then, of course, at times, there is a role for me to engage with the most senior people. I'm not going to start name dropping, but I have, of course, met with the CEOs, the general counsel of many, if not most of these organizations at various times, depending on what buttons we need to press for what reason. 
Okay. So, yes. Now, about 12 or 18 months ago, I think a group of MEPs came to Ireland and they were very exercised about the work of the Irish Data Protection Commission. They made quite a song and dance about saying that it wasn't adequately resourced, it wasn't doing its job properly, that kind of thing. What were the specific concerns and did you feel that you were in a position to allay them? Oh, very much in a position to allay them. So you're right, a group of parliamentarians from the Civil Liberties Committee of the European Parliament came to Dublin and they and they wanted to look at what were criticisms that were being expressed about the Irish data protection regime. So they had a whole couple of days of an agenda where they met civil society bodies, they met the Joint Justice Iraqis Committee, they met various politicians, the Department of Justice, and their last port of call was me and the Irish Data Protection Commission. And they were very exercised, as you said, by the time they arrived at the Irish Data Protection Commission. But by the time they left, after several hours of a meeting, they were significantly reassured. They were significantly better informed. We got onto a much more positive footing. A, a huge problem in EU data protection terms is that, first of all, that one-stop shop, which we could talk about for hours, is very, very procedurally complex and it's not well understood. The second thing is that while Europe aims for harmonisation through the GDPR in terms of data protection law, at the centre, the European Data Protection Board doesn't have any centralised statistics, there are no reliable databases and into that vacuum comes a lot of misinformation and misrepresentation in terms of, of how we do our work. So once I get the opportunity to explain mm. generally. So, sounds like you won them over big time there, Helen. But can I, can I the curious uh, committee that you referred to there, Mark referred to these MEPs, but you said they were from the Civil Liberties Committee. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. I mean, GDPR, and I sound like a, a, this is a song I've, I've sung before on this show, but is GDPR a little bit too much? I mean, are we overregulated now? I mean, you know, you, you, you work, you're in a sports club, somebody takes a photograph, can you put it up, can you display it? This sort of stuff, it's all got a bit crazy, hasn't it? I, I don't think we're overregulated. GDPR and those principles are really common sense. But what, of course, you do see is a type of implementation that's really so risk averse and defensive in its approach to data that it's really not protective of individuals, but is annoying them. And and we've heard that criticism in terms of community groups where they feel they can't put up a rote anymore of who's going to do the coffee after after games or residence groups where they're now afraid to share numbers between neighbours and so on. Well, can, is, is, can they? Sorry. sorry, Mark, and I'll let you in here, but can they? Can we, can we get that now? So tell the great unwashed <laughs> out there what they can do and what they can't do. Look, the GDPR isn't intending to stop people living their lives. Uh, and it is about risk. And, and the GDPR promotes a risk-based approach. So the measures organisations need to take are supposed to be proportionate to the risk. But none of us are good at measuring risk. And so you can get, as I said, defensive reactions, and then you can get uh, approaches where the risk hasn't been appropriately measured at all. So you know, and is it a little bit like health and safety that a lot of organisations just use GDPR as an excuse 
not to do something, not to provide information, not to be cooperative. They sort of say, oh, we can't do that because GDPR. Is that is that a is is, is do you think there's sort of an excessive citing of GDPR where it's not really relevant? Oh, that for sure. I, I mean, I'm not sure that there's, I, we do often hear the complaint that organisations are deliberately using it as an excuse. I'm I'm not so sure it's that. I think it's more at the latter in terms of what you said. It's overly cited yeah. and people bring it into things where it really isn't relevant because this is one of the side effects of having a very hard enforcement edge mm. to the law. People are nervous that they're going to be Okay, so you're, you're coming up towards the end of 10 years in the role. How do you reflect on your achievements? Oh, well, I think the key one is what we've discussed here today. It was a very small, regionally based office in Ireland when I arrived in 2014. It's now an internationally recognised, well-regarded, credible data protection authority that's leading on enforcement globally and that has handled many of the cutting edge cases in terms of internet companies and social media platforms. So, so you there's feel a lot you're more handing to do. it over to your successor in, in, in good shape and taking it to the next stage of regulating AI and all of the, the challenges that are going to come with that. There's plenty to be done, but there is a fantastic team at the Data Protection Commission and, and certainly uh, whoever inherits that team is is inheriting a wealth of expertise and commitment. Helen, we're going to have to ask you about the next chapter. But before I do that, can I just go back a little bit and just, you know, we hear, I mean, the big international companies, they're the ones that get the headlines, they're the ones that get the media coverage. But you are there for everybody, aren't you? And, you know, talking. let's talk about the ordinary punter who believes that their data has been breached. They've engaged with a company they gave their details confidentially and then suddenly they find they have been phoned by another operation that might have got that d- data. They can make a complaint to you or your successor, as it's going to be in a little while, but they can do that, can't they? Oh, they can. So we handle thousands of complaints every year and each year when we launch our annual report around February, we produce a lot of case studies to illustrate to people how they can... Uh, empower themselves to to give effect to to their rights. The most frequent type of complaint we get is about access rights. So each individual has a right to access a copy of their personal data. And we're finding frequently that in terms of the complaints we get, organisations are ignoring individuals completely. It can be that whoever receives the access request doesn't recognise it as a request under law to access data or they're simply being ignored by, by, by some of the smaller organisations, or where the request is responded to, the organisation has redacted and restricted the right so much that it's not effective. So we intervene on all of those cases. What about data breaches? And we have covered on this show previously, we had an interview with two people who talked about the recent developments in the European Court of Justice in the Austrian Post case where they talked about non-material damage. Mm -hmm. So just to explain to people out there, obviously material damage is maybe a business suffering as a result of a data breach, etc. But non-material damage is, let's say, somebody being upset, an individual, for example, being upset about the fact that their data protection rights were breached. And now there is a mechanism in the Irish courts where somebody can get redressed for that. They can get compensation. Mm. Isn't that the case? That, that is the case. That was another introduction under the GDPR where individuals mm. have a private right of action and they can go to court and they can seek 
compensation if they have suffered damage as a result of an infringement of the GDPR. So in fact, interestingly, just last year in 2023, the first damages case under the 2018 Act went to hearing in Ireland. There have been a couple of cases, but they've all settled outside of court. The first one that went to hearing was heard heard by Judge O'Connor, John O'Connor in the circuit court. And it was a case called Kaminsky versus Bally Maguire Foods. Uh, and in that case, Judge O'Connor followed the, the, the CJU rulings where he found that mere upset wouldn't be enough to ground damages and that there had to be a link between the infringement and the damages. But in that case, he awarded 2,000 euros to Mr. Kaminsky on the basis that Mr. Kaminsky's employer had infringed his GDPR And the damages rights. were pegged at a very low level, kind of personal injuries type, psychiatric injury type level of damages, I think. Isn't that, isn't yes, that really and, the way it's been And pitched? that was a case where Mr. Kaminsky had suffered embarrassment and, and yes. distress as a result of actions their employer it took. It was an agricultural training video. video or something, That's wasn't it? it? Yes, yes, exactly where he was okay. being used. But it's very important to say that. So for people out there now, if they're upset by something, you know, they don't have to show that their business was affected or that they had experienced a loss as a result of it. They yeah, it can be emotionally be affected loss. by that and they still have rights now, which I think is very important. Okay, so um, can I ask you then about your plans for the future? You're, when you're, you're stepping down in a month's time, is it? Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. I, I, I finish up in February. In fact, I'm going to continue on the regulatory streak. I'm going to become a commissioner for telecommunications regulation yeah. in February. When you say a commissioner, do you mean the commissioner for telecommunications? No, I'm right. going to become a commissioner right. because okay. Comreg, right. uh, as the uh, regulatory body is called, has two existing commissioners. Okay. And I will join those two as a three-person commission right. uh, from February. So lots to learn. Fantastic. And we have a final question that we always ask our guests, which I think we've notified you of. Do you have a book or a film that you would like to recommend to our listeners? I'll mention one of each that I've come across recently. In terms of the book, I would recommend Kidnapped, the... Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. No, the... <laughs> <laughs> we featured kidnap the kidnap Well, the kidnapping, sorry, that was the one we featured on this show. Yeah, sorry, you're talking about something else. and McGreevy are the journalists that, oh, yeah. that wrote it. It's about yeah. the yes, Don, Don Tidy kidnapping. Yeah, we, we've yeah. done an episode on that. And so the we, we loved Oh, right. Yes. Mm. Okay, yeah. yeah. Really, yeah. really mm. interesting reflection. Mm. Uh, and lots mm. of little detail in it that, mm. that I enjoyed. And then in terms of film, the definitely the film that has had the most impact on me recently was that short documentary on RTE, Patrick, A Young Traveller Lost. Okay. Uh, incredibly sad, extremely impactful in terms of reflecting on that awful habit we always have of making insiders and outsiders out of everything. Sure. And uh, really, it's it's one I would commend to everyone to watch. And probably still available on player. I saw it on the RTE player, yeah. Fantastic. OK, well, thank you very much, Helen Dixon, for joining us here in the Fifth Court. You're very welcome. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. And that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Helen Dixon, Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner, for a little while longer, Mark, but she's yeah. moving off to pastures new. Indeed, yeah. But I think she's, from from her account, she's done an amazing job of building up a very oh, organisation to a, an international leader. And we wish her very well with her new role with Comreg. 
Well, anyway, before we go, can I say a huge thank you to our producer, Cunnell O'Moroin, and to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for their wonderful work in recording this show. So from me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.